Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to No Meat Athlete Radio. Brenda Davis, uh, registered dietitian. Brenda Davis RD, as I often see it, all over the place. Um, I am so excited to have this conversation with you. You are truly one of the pioneers and one of the leading thinkers of all things plant-based, and if I'm not mistaken, um, you were the first registered dietitian to receive the Plantrition Project's Luminary Award. So um, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of your afternoon with me. Oh, I'm delighted, Matt, and thank you so much for inviting me. And and yes, I, I think I was the first dietitian, the first Canadian, and the first woman. <laughs> so that uh, was pretty, that, pretty that, awesome. <laughs> that, that reflects um, so highly uh, on you and so poorly on them, right? Um, we, we need to get some more women, some more Canadians, and some more dietitians in, in, in that rank. Um, so... Um, First and foremost, I'll, I'll acknowledge that uh, I have a bit of a cold, so forgive me if I'm clearing my throat, coughing, or, or I'll, I'll try to go off camera to blow my nose <laughs> as, as necessary, but um, you yeah. have a new book out uh, called Plant-Powered Protein, um, a question that uh, I think all of us um, receive far too often, um, you know, this, this concern around protein, but, but it is a concern. And, and at a minimum, it is a controversy. So I'm so excited because you you teamed up with a fellow dietitian, Vasanto Molina, as well as Corey Davis, to put together a, a really deep dive into everything from you know the the basics of this macronutrient all the way to the ecological implications of how we derive our protein, which is critical to to human health, right? And you have some, and we're going to get into this. Maybe I'll we'll leave it for later. Who, who say it's critical for human health, and in in a negative sense, right? That that it can be very uh, um, uh, destructive if you eat too much protein. And then you have this other side of the equation, far more uh, probably vocal right now, which is the um, uh, the idea that you need tons and tons and tons of protein, and we often hear about that from. You know the folks who believe in the, the keto or paleo or carnivore side of the diet. Um, I'm just excited to have you and to dig into all these topics, and hopefully you can shed some light on that controversy for us. Oh, you bet. I'm excited to be here. And I'll tell you, it, whenever you write a book and you pick a very specific topic, you learn a lot in the process as well. So it was, it was a really fun project, and it came about um, because our publisher said, you know, whenever I'm selling books at, at an exhibit hall, uh, the number one question we get asked as they walk by our booth is, well, how are you going to get protein if you become completely vegetarian uh, or plant-based? And so he said, we just need a book to answer that question. And so we thought, well, not that hard to get enough protein from plants, but okay. And that, that's how it all came about. And then we got my son involved because of his expertise in uh, in the environmental side of things. So that was really special for me. I just loved working with him on this. Isn't that funny? I, I didn't put two and two together. Um, <laughs> that is so cool. Um, uh, yeah, I, sh I, should have, I should have connected the two, but um, uh, shame on me. No, well, no. Let, let's, let's start 
Let's start at the basics. Um, and uh, well, actually, you know what? Um, let's not, because I think most people listening I, I, at this point have a primer on, on protein. Um, maybe we can take this from the 101 course level and go straight to so the, the, the more advanced work. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned as you dug in that you learned um, some, some things. I, I'm curious, just like, uh, what, what is the most surprising thing or the most interesting thing that you learned through this process? Well, I guess from two sides, looking at, at, at the political aspects of protein choices and, and how, how that all evolved and how the, the animal protein sort of ended up with a bit of a health halo. Uh, it, all of that was very, very interesting. And, and of course, the ecological uh, aspects as well for me were interesting, even though I wasn't writing that part of the book, my, book myself. But in terms of nutrition, um, I, I think I, I started to recognize that uh, even though it's so commonly said in the plant-based world that you know nobody ever gets protein deficiency and we don't have to worry about if you eat enough calories, you get enough protein, I started to realize that that's not always true. And that we may be needing to be a little more conscientious, especially uh, during our senior years uh, when we don't absorb uh, amino acids as well. So those were all things that came up for me. And I, I, I want to get into, you, you taught me a word when we were uh, starting to, to um, get into this stuff before recording. And I want to get into all that, but you also brought up something which is um, there's tremendous amount of controversy around this topic. And before we get into the specific controversy and the science and your opinion, um, I'd love to better just understand why do you think there is such a controversy here? Because it, it seems to me like there should be rather empirical science to suggest kind of what is optimal. So can you maybe just uh, you know, we can spend probably the next three hours on just this topic, but, but maybe you can just give us a high level overview of why is there such controversy? What do the two sides say about protein intake and, and what is the science as you understand it in terms of the optimal protein intake for humans? Yeah, so so I would say that that um, the two sides on the on the one side, are the folks that really believe we need very little protein, maybe 5% of calories and that protein um, inherently is problematic in terms of increasing cancer risk, but particularly if it's animal protein. And, and then on the other side are the people that have done the research showing that you know, athletes need to, to be consuming 1.2 to two grams of protein per kilogram body weight, depending on the type of training they're doing and that leucine becomes, you know, another branch chain amino acids, but especially leucine can be a, an issue uh, for, for people. And so those that are more, more interested in building muscle mass are more concerned about making sure there's enough protein, but the same goes for, as I mentioned, the seniors and concerns about sarcopenia or muscle wasting, uh, which can increase our risk of morbidity and mortality as we get older. And so, you know, my, in my opinion, um, I think that, uh, to be honest, I think the RDA um, 
as said at 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight. And, and the average biological requirements are probably around 0.66. And so we add a sort of safety margin of about 25% to cover 97. We don't want half the people not getting enough. So we want to cover 97, 98% of the population. So that's why the RDA is set at 0.8. I think it's 0.83 in, in Europe, just slightly higher. But to me, that's based on pretty good evidence. And I think it's a very reasonable place to start for people to aim for at least that amount. Now, some people who are consuming a very high fiber diet, so let's say they're, they're you know, truly whole food plant-based, most of their pro protein is coming from beans, lentils, whole grains, maybe a few seeds and you know, vegetables. Um, for those people adding 10% to the RDA might make sense simply because some of the protein gets carried through the gastrointestinal tract with the fiber. And so we lose about, you know, about 10%. And, and so we're just tacking on what we, what we lose. It's not because it's inferior or, or, or anything like that. It's just because we lose some uh, through digestion. And so I think that's an important Point. Now, if you're a person who, like myself, I regularly include some low fiber, high protein foods in my diet, like soy milk, like tofu, like nut and seed butters, um, those kinds of things, even once in a while, some veggie burger or something like that. Um, if people that do consume some of those lower protein foods or lower, sorry, lower, lower fiber foods, higher protein foods. I probably don't need to add the 10%, but for those that are eating truly whole food plant-based, uh, adding 10% is reasonable. And so that's where we're at. For athletes, they need more. For seniors, we might, and of course for children, uh, the, you know, the numbers are a little higher. It's 1.05 grams per kilogram for toddlers and 0.95 for kids from four to 13 and 0.85 for teens. So it's just a, a tiny bit higher you're looking at about a gram per kilogram during during childhood. And, and, and then for seniors, most of the experts are now suggesting that they may need one to 1 1.2. Um, now getting 1.2 grams per kilogram for a senior is a whole lot harder than getting 1.2 grams per kilogram for an athlete because the athletes are consuming three or four or more thousand calories a day, whereas the seniors are reducing their caloric intake because they need less, less food. Uh, so then it, it, it becomes more of a challenge for sure. And I, I don't, I don't need you to make the, uh, the argument, their arguments for them, but, but can you comment on, um, the cancer risk and kind of what those, that camp is seeing and why, why you don't think it's necessarily as much of a risk, or perhaps it's, it's not as much of a risk in comparison to obviously the the whole set of, of uh, health concerns one has and the need to obviously, you know, have the optimal macronutrient ratio. Yeah. So, you know, for me, um, I think, I think it's worth saying that um, it, I think it's an issue. And we, we know we have some studies suggesting animal protein uh, increases cancer cell proliferation. And, and so if you're eating a lot of animal protein, that could, could be an issue. And we also have a number of studies, which I think are very, very interesting studies showing 
that if you replace animal protein with plant protein, uh, you reduce risk of death, of more morbidity and mortality. And so there, there are a whole bunch of studies. There was one study, um, you know, from Harvard in 2020 showing that if you replace 3% of your calories from animal protein with plant protein, which is 60 calories in a 2000 calorie diet, that's less than one egg, just to put it, it's, it's like one ounce of meat. It's a tiny amount. So 3% of calories from animal protein with plant protein will reduce your risk of death 10%. Wow. So, so, and if you think the average American is eating 90 or 100 grams of protein, what 70 or 80% of it's coming from animal products in many cases, um, that, that's a, that could be a very big number if, if you decide to replace 30% of calories from animal protein with, with plant protein. Uh, so it, it's, this is not insignificant. And, and this, you know, they actually, there are a number of studies that actually quantified different sources of animal protein or looked at different sources of animal protein swapping for, for plant protein. And, and they found, you know, if we replace red meat, um, you know, you, you reduce risk of death by, you know, in this 2020 study, I think it was 13% for men and 15% for women. For eggs, it was like 24% for men and 21% for women. And there are different studies. There was a study from Japan with like set, this was a study, the one that I was just talking about was over 400,000 individuals. But there was a study of over 70,000 individuals in Japan showing um, it, you swap out 3% of calories from animal protein, 60 calories in the 2000 calorie diet, and mortality drops 34%. Um, and, and if it was processed meat, it was uh, the drop was 46%. And for cancer, it was like 50% drop for processed meat. So, so we've got, and, and you know what, it's, it's noted that the data is very similar for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer. Um, it's very, very similar. And so animal protein to me is more the issue. Uh, uh, I, you know, to, to say we need to keep our calories down to 5% with plant protein, I've never seen a study showing that, um, you know, a, a, an intake of 10 or 15 or even 20% of calories from protein that comes from plants is an issue. There was a study from 2014, this was over 6,000 individuals that looked at um, uh, people consuming a lot of protein, over 20% of calories from protein versus those consuming 10 to 19% of calories from protein versus those consuming less than 10%. And the people consuming the most protein had about a 75% increased risk of mortality. And they had increased risk of diabetes and, and cancer and so on and so on. However, if the protein came mainly from plants, that association was either completely annihilated or it was greatly attenuated. So the, the risk was only present when the protein came from animal products. And, and, you know, you might say, well, what, you know, why, what is it in animal products that that's so problematic? And you might think of the saturated fat or the, you know, the, the new 5GC, which is a pro-inflammatory molecule or the heme iron, which can be very pro-inflammatory or the precursors to trimethylamine N oxide, which is a atherogenic compound or the fact that there's 
hardly any antioxidants or phytochemicals or fiber or prebiotics or any of the protective stuff that you get in the plants. There are lots and lots of reasons, even if you think about the chemical contaminants in the environment that move up the food chain, um, you know, they're higher in animal products. So, so there are lots of reasons why this, this, you know, this, we see this distinct difference uh, between plant and animal protein. But, but what is so interesting to me is for so many decades, we've defined the quality of protein based on the amino acids present in the, in the, in the protein source and the digestibility of that protein. And to me, protein quality is also very much about how it impacts morbidity and mortality, death and disease. Right. You know, right. it, it, I think we even need to factor in the environmental impacts because, you know, humans are only going to be as healthy as time goes on as, as what our environment is. And so we need to, we need to consider those things. And so, I, I, I almost think we need to redefine protein quality uh, in, in, in a sense. And, and we're learning more. You know, when we first started with these, you know, protein quality assessment tools, um, I remember, well, we still use the PER, the protein efficiency ratio in Canada. And it was based on, the, on, on you know, feeding baby rats one uh, protein source. And they did really well on meat and cheese. They didn't do as well on plants. They're fur-bearing animals that double their weight in four weeks. You know, they need a lot of sulfur-containing amino acids. Uh, we need less. So it overvalued uh, animal protein. It undervalued plant proteins for humans. And, and then we, we ended up with the, uh, the PD-CAS uh, score, and it was based on malnourished two-year-olds and, and the, you know, the DS score, which, you know, used pigs and and, and fed the you know, pigs raw lentils and raw grains, which of course humans cook before we eat them. So digestibility is vastly improved when they're cooked. Um, you know, we now have the, 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 the TID or the, you know, the true ileal digestibility, which is a little, I think maybe a little more accurate, but, but all of these you know, scoring tools have always tended to favor animal products because they don't contain any fiber, they're super digestible. And they tend to have a, a pretty rich balance of all of the essential amino acids. But what a lot of people don't realize when they say, well, you know, plant foods are low quality, they're lacking in essential amino acids. The truth is, is that, is that plant foods are the foods that manufacture essential amino acids. They manufacture them, animals don't, that's why they're essential. They all come from plants, whether directly or indirectly, through animals that ate plants. Um, the, the point being is that, is that it makes no sense to think we can't get essential amino acids from plants. It's where they come from, you know? Um, yeah. so, so that's the Love point. And, and we don't have to do this combining of, you know, if we eat a variety of plants and we include some of the more protein-rich plant foods like legumes and seeds and nuts and so forth, we will, you know, and we're getting enough calories, generally we get enough protein. But some people do need to think about what is my protein source for this meal? 
Well, let, let me, before we get into those recommendations and for, for identifying purging sources, you, you covered a lot of ground there and I, I want to make sure to go back. Um, first of all, the, <clears throat> the story about uh, um, uh, uh, creating protein recommendations, you know, based on how rats respond to meat and cheese versus, you know, uncooked lentils, just demonstrates the some of the challenges we have in in uh, official recommendations and we obviously being in the US pay more attention to the PDCAS score I remember when we were developing our mm-hmm. our protein product we really wanted to make sure that we were building a diverse set of amino acids a a highest possible PDCAS score because that has to do with absorbability and you know our our read of it is you know most of those um, supplemental protein products on the market are by and large like ninety to ninety five percent pea protein because it's it's cheap and it's you know all things considered um, uh, pretty digestible uh, and, and it's cheap <laughs> which is frankly you know and and it's it's a lot more expensive to use watermelon seed protein and and almonds and all of these different things, which is obviously what we chose to do, because I, I think there is something to, like you said, a, a getting a diversity of amino acids. Mm-hmm. And, and we hear a lot about that. Maybe if you wouldn't mind uh, spending a, a second more about, you know, kind of on the, the, the biomechanical processes here, because when you eat, you know, uh, a protein, you know, it's not like it goes directly into your, into your muscles, right? Like your muscles just get bigger with, you know, lentils, you know, (laughs) there's a process there where your body has to, to break down that food source, has to absorb that food source, those amino acids and have to be processed and reformed into the, the protein strands, right? So, and that's where you get some of these facts or myths about, you know, uh, 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 milk, being the the highest PDCAS score, the highest in terms of uh, absorbability, or or uh, animal products having complete amino acid profiles, whereas plants don't. Maybe you could just speak a little bit more about what are the concerns there, and or maybe there aren't any. And like you said, we just need to eat a diversity of of foods, and the body will take care of itself. Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to say that I I think you guys have done an amazing job with the protein powder that you're providing. I recommend it uh, all the time. I love that you have a mix of proteins. One of the protein sources in the product and that you've been so conscious about keeping it really clean um, because so many of the protein powders out there are full of, you know, artificial flavors and sugars and preservatives and thickeners and you know, all of that stuff. So it's really great that there's a, 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 a wonderful product. One of the things that I found, I just have to share this with you. When I started going through the USDA nutrient database, when I was looking at uh, uh, the sort of the amino acid profile of different uh, plant foods, if you extract and concentrate um, different proteins, which is what is done, of course, for protein powders, uh, I was shocked to learn that corn protein came in number one for leucine content and potato protein came in number two. 
for leucine content. So you, you might want to just check that out because those are cheap protein sources. Yeah. And, and so when they're, you know, obviously these foods aren't super concentrated protein foods, but when the, um, you know, the protein is extracted, they're, they're really quite, they seem to be quite exceptional leucine sources. So I was really surprised about that. But yeah. getting back to your point, you know, when you, when you consume a food, um, there are a lot of things that affect, um, you know, obviously amino acid uh, profiles, essential amino acid profiles, and generally in the plant kingdom, you're wanting to make sure you're including legumes because they're really the protein, you know, the protein kings or queens of the of the plant kingdom. And 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 because with children especially, the 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 amino acid that tends to fall short if they're barely meeting I mean, or a protein needs. So let's say a child needs 20 grams of protein and they're only getting 20 grams of protein, the amino acid that'll tend to fall short will be lysine. And, and lysine is, is really more concentrated in the legume family. Um, and, and so if you, you know, if, if, if a child is eating mostly grains, which a lot of children do, they like spaghetti and they like, they like you know, white flour things, uh, they, they could fall short in lysine if they're just barely meeting protein needs. Now, most kids get, a, you know, there was a study in Germany looking at uh, nutrient intakes in omnivorous versus lacto vegetarian versus vegan children. And, and if you recall, at that age, one to three years of age, they need 1.05 grams of, of protein per kilogram body weight. Well, the omnivores were getting 2.7 the lacto-ovo vegetarians were getting 2.3 and the vegans were getting 2.4. Um, so they were all over double uh, the RDA for uh, protein. And, and that was over, that was at 430 children. It was a fairly good sized study. So, so generally there's not an issue, but if there was, and a child was a picky eater and they were just barely meeting protein requirements, uh, then it, lysine becomes an issue. So one of the things you want to do as a parent is to make sure that you're including legumes in the diet. And legumes doesn't just have to be a bowl of beans. It can be a peanut butter sandwich. It can be uh, having some, uh, you know, little crispy tofu cubes that you've done in the air fryer or whatever. Um, but you need to, you know, or using one of the, I think one of the easiest things for parents to do is use use fortified soy milk instead of almond milk or cashew milk or oat milk even, um, because the soy milk has about usually around eight grams of protein per cup, about the same as dairy milk. Uh, it has about the same amount of calcium, same amount of vitamin D, same amount of B12, even a little higher B12. Uh, so it's, it, it's a really easy swap. Uh, and I know a lot of people will say, but won't soy turn boys into girls or whatever, make, you know, think cause them to grow man boobs or, and, and in fact, no, uh, the only studies, there are two case studies that showed, you know, that that could be an issue, but those people were averaging 14.4 servings of soy a day. Uh, no, you don't want to be consuming 14 or 15 servings of anything per day. So, you know, but at normal levels of intake, two to four servings a day for adults, a couple of servings for children, uh, it's just not an issue. And it's, we've got so much evidence uh, for that. In fact, 
it, children who consume soy as children tend to have less breast cancer, or lower risk of breast cancer in later life. And we know men who consume soy have a significantly lower risk of prostate cancer as well. Uh, and, and we've seen it, it can, you know, help with other things like cardiovascular risk, um, you know, a, a lower risk of symptoms of menopause, male pattern baldness, there's all sorts of things. Uh, it may even help a little bit with bone density. So it, it's, it's not to me, uh, uh, we don't have to have those concerns about soy. <coughs> I forget if I got off on a tangent there. No, but we no, were... you, you, you address <laughs> the, the amino acid. And so I guess my, my question would be, leucine is typically the limiting factor. We often hear that. And it sounds like as long as you're getting it's adequate good. calories and including legumes, which could include... Yeah, so, so just, to, just to, to clarify that, it's lysine. For children. So two different amino acids. Right, Leucine yeah. would be the sort of, you might consider sort of limiting for muscle gain, whereas lysine, it tends to be the, the amino acid that'll fall short, especially for children. So, so there's differences in requirements for children versus adults. So for example, lysine, uh, children need 58 milligrams per, per gram of protein, whereas adults only need 38. And so it's easy to get enough lysine for adults. It's not as easy uh, for children. They need a little more concentrated um, uh, sources. And so it's, it becomes even more important for them to have the legumes. Now, leucine, what's really interesting about leucine is that one of the foods that is the very most concentrated in leucine is actually seitan, which is low in lysine. You know, it's seitan is low in lysine. It's fairly high in sulfur-containing amino acids, but it's it's very high in leucine. So it, it can be a really good choice for, for muscle building, which is interesting. But still, even if you're using it, you still want to make sure you're getting the legume-based uh, proteins as well. Right, which are high in fiber and, and all sorts yeah. of phytochemicals that are good for other things as well. Exactly. Um, thank you for, yeah. So, but I guess that's my, um, you're, you're proving the, the other camp's point, right? That, that this is confusing and you have to pay attention to all these amino acids and, you know, adults need more leucine and kids need more lysine. Um, is this something that people need to worry about or what, what, yeah. what is your approach in your household? Yeah, I, I don't think people need to worry about it at all. I think what they need to do is, is be eating a variety of plant foods. So, so we need to include, if you look, that's, you know, that's why we create the food guides we create in all of our books. So this was my 13th book and we always have food guides that, that, that you know, give you an idea of, of, you know, you need to eat half your plate should be fruits and vegetables, about a quarter of your plate should be some sort of protein choices, which can include beans and tofu and tempeh and, and lentils and, you know, all of those seitan, uh, all of those kinds of things. And then maybe a quarter of the plate, the starchy foods, um, you know, the grains and, and uh, you some people will put starchy vegetables in, the, in there as well, instead of with the non-starchies, but regardless of how you do it, that's, that's kind of what your plate should look like. And so if you're, if you're eating enough calories and you're eating a variety of those foods, 
you're you're going to be, you know, if you look at the average protein intakes, and we have a, a really good study in North America, the Adventist Health Study too, looking at protein intakes in 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 adults who are omnivorous and vegetarian and vegan and so forth. And average intakes um, in in the omnivores were 75 grams a day, which seems lower than the average American, which it is because the Adventists tend to eat a little more plant-based generally, even if they're omnivorous. Uh, but the vegans were consuming 71 grams of protein a day, about 50% more than what you know the RDA is. So, so it's we're we're generally getting plenty. Um, but there are some situations where we need to be a little bit more conscious. If a child's a really picky eater, we might have to think about, you know, maybe selecting a legume-based pasta instead of a, a wheat-based pasta to up their, their protein intake a little bit. There are, you know, just different things, adding red lentils to the spaghetti sauce or, you know, doing things that'll I'll make the food more fun, more fun for them. And, and certainly there are times when even uh, some of the more, I would say, be a little bit selective, but the veggie meats can come into play. And I would see that for some children and, and especially seniors who are eating smaller quantities and need that really digestible protein because they have a more difficult time extracting protein from food. Uh, so they could that they could be of value in some scenarios for sure. And, and let's let's talk about that. You know, I, I think um, the life cycle or eating for different life stages doesn't get enough um, appreciation because, as you noted, kids have different requirements, adults have different requirements, older adults have different requirements, and yet in the popular culture it's sort of like you're either vegan or you're paleo or you you eat a standard diet or whatever and and there's not really like i say an appreciation for the fact that your body changes and your needs change over time I, i'm hoping you can answer that question and you know the the thing i always um the the word that i uh, often say is sarcopenia which is uh, like the withering you know that that can happen as uh, adults get into their, their golden years, um, you mentioned two others, which uh, I was embarrassed to say, I don't think I had heard before, core and Merasmus, two different types of protein deficiencies or protein energy deficiency. Um, I'm hopeful that you can sort of clarify all that for us and, and educate us on what, what those um, conditions look like. Yeah, so sarcopenia, as you mentioned, is is just is wasting of muscle as we age, uh, particularly, and it's it's you know we see it in almost all seniors where there's muscle loss, and and we can work hard at retaining our muscle as we get older, uh, and that's mainly by doing two things: by eating enough protein and other nutrients that are necessary to retain muscle but also by using our muscles. <laughs> and so we need to exercise and we need to exercise every day and we need to include weight-bearing exercise in our mix. And I think that's really crucial. I know myself, I'm, I'm not quite a senior, I'm 64, but I'll, I'll shortly be a you know, full-fledged uh, senior. And I have worked really hard to retain my muscle. 
uh, and my strength. And I can still do what I could do as a younger person because I've worked at it, but I'm also conscious of the protein I'm eating. Uh, and then the other, uh, you mentioned kwashiorkor and marasmus. Uh, kwashiorkor is, is protein malnutrition. Uh, and we don't really see that a lot in North America. I, I would guess most physicians have never seen a case of kwashiorkor. Uh, that, that's typically in, in populations where they're, uh, you know, kids are getting uh, calories but it's almost all one food, like they're eating just rice or they're eating, you know, just some sort of starch like cassava root or something like that. And so they're, they're really not getting enough protein and they develop this distended stomach and, and um, uh, edema and it, it's a really sad situation. And then marasmus is also a protein malnutrition, but it's also um, energy malnutrition, uh, micronutrient deficiencies are all sort of interwound into that. And, uh, and so we don't see those kinds of really severe protein deficiencies in North America, uh, with few exceptions. Uh, but we do see sometimes inadequate protein intakes and some consequences of that. And, and I would say sort of the most common consequences that I see of, of um, you know, sort of insufficient protein are the muscle wasting, your immune system is weakened um, and because you can't build all the antibodies, they're made of protein. Uh, you may end up with reduced bone density, um, uh, hair falling out, uh, nail problems, skin problems, uh, because you need the elastin and the keratin and the collagen, and that's all made of protein. And you can see stunted growth in children. Uh, people tend to feel really weak and hungry when they're deficient in protein. And they, you know, we see mood changes. We see a lot of things, but for me and my practice, the, what I see uh, mostly is, is people noticing things like skin and hair and nails and and, and weakened immune systems and, and just feeling tired and weak. And that's usually seniors who are eating um, very little food, that's sort of the tea and toast seniors, uh, where they're really not, you know, they may be consuming 30 or 35 grams of protein a day. And that's just not adequate. It's not adequate at even, you know, for an adult. Um, and it's certainly not adequate for a senior who's not absorbing as many of the essential amino acids um, that are required. And so they need to be upping it, not, not uh, decreasing it. And that's super hard uh, for, for a lot of seniors. So there can be a place for smoothies with a little bit of protein powder or, or some, like I say, some more concentrated soy curls or tofu or those kinds of things work really well in that situation. Yeah. And I'll just offer that <clears throat> white beans or butter beans and uh, uh, you can, or uh, silken tofu, you can actually add to a smoothie. Yes. And, uh, and I obviously add, you know, protein powder to mine, but in addition to that, cause I want a diversity of amino acids, I want more whole foods, I want all the good stuff that I can get. So I'll pack, I, I've even put, you know, lentils into a smoothie before, but that, um, will definitely alter the taste more so yeah. than butter beans or, or white beans. Um, uh, I can yeah. tell you, I, I, at this point, I've probably added every type of bean to smoothies and 
you know, st right. stick to the, depending on your palate for me, it's, it's more fuel than, than taste, but yeah. um, I want to make sure we have time before we wrap up because I know a good bit of your book um, now that I know your, your son uh, drove a lot of it uh, uh, to give me an opportunity to comment on the ecological concerns because it is rather crazy that in a world where we still see something like, you know, uh, what is the horrible set? 800 million people around the world suffer from malnutrition while another 800 million are on the other end of the spectrum suffering from diseases of, of, uh, of affluence, right? Um, yeah. That we are effectively feeding grain and other cereals to animals uh, only to then, you know, consume those same nutrients, you know, much further down the food chain. So maybe, maybe you can just help us think about how, how we think about those, those impacts, let alone the lives of those animals. Yeah. So, you know, I've just always felt that um, the choice between plant, you know, protein rich plant foods um, and pro protein rich animal foods is just no contest. Even though our culture is so meat focused. And the reason for me is, is plant uh, based uh, or protein rich plant foods are more sustainable. They're just a um, more healthful there and and they're um, a much kinder way of of feeding a very rapidly growing population and and to me it's it just doesn't make sense to to funnel our our you know protein through animals um, when it's not you know it hurts us it hurts the planet it hurts us and it 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 causes so much suffering to animals so I I just I, I feel quite strongly about that. But if you look at um, the ecological argument, one of the things that I found quite interesting, there was a study that actually looked at the um, uh, carbon footprint of popular diets. And, and the, the, the keto diet was, I think it was almost uh, uh, three kilograms of carbon dioxide per thousand calories. The paleo was, I, I think it was like 2.9 for keto, 2.6 for paleo. And then uh, for omnivore, um, it was just over the two, like 2.3. And then for vegetarian, it was 1.2 or something like that. And for vegans, it was like 0. 0.69 or 0. 0.7. So, so it was just such a huge difference. And the reason is, is that if you look at the indicators of environmental impact, like the greenhouse gas emissions and the, the land use, the water use, the water pollution, the you know, acidifying emissions, all of that. And, and you know, uh, in, in our book, we've got you know, graphs showing the differences, but, but, but at the top of all of these emission charts are animal products, um, just consistently. Uh, and at the bottom are our plant products, and 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 uh, you know we did some calculations, and for greenhouse gas emissions, beef produces 31 times more greenhouse gas emissions than tofu, and and I think it was over a hundred times more uh, in in terms of land use, and and it was like 59 times more water pollution, and. And, and, you know, using 18 or 20 times more water and had having a whole lot more, uh, it was close to 50 times more acidifying emissions. So 
It's it's wow. just huge. It's absolutely enormous. And here we are in a in a world where we're telling people to take shorter showers and to drive, you know, these these uh, you know energy efficient uh, electric vehicles and so on and so on. And yet we're not saying anything about um, what we eat. And often it's just a part of this discourse that's completely uh, ignored and it doesn't make sense. Um, these are things that the average individual can do. We can make, we can just, even if you never want to become vegan, uh, just shifting, you know, like China's uh, really urging their population to consume at least 50% less meat. Uh, if you look at international organizations, um, you know, we've got so many international organizations now telling people we need to be eating um, more plant-based diets. The World Health Organization, um, you know, they in, in Europe, they've got guidelines for healthy eating. And number one is to eat more plant-based foods and fewer animal-based foods. If you look at the FAO, you know, the... Um, uh, their report, they just highlighted all the countries that are emphasizing plants and plant foods and, you know, all the cancer organizations that, that really emphasize eating more, more plant-based diets. It's, it's not even controversial anymore. In Canada, our, our national food guide um, is, you know, half the plates, fruits and vegetables, a quarter of the plate grain and a quarter of the plate uh, protein-rich foods, but but the government clearly states that we should be choosing plant sources of protein every day, and that plant sources of protein have advantages over animal sources of protein. Um, they have less saturated fat and cholesterol, and so on and so on and so on. And and uh, plant products provide the fiber and all of these things, and are healthier choices. And uh, dairy is 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 no longer a distinct. It has a, no longer a distinct food group in the guide. It's just part of that protein group. And uh, so it's, you know, huge strides. And we're seeing more and more shift in that direction as we recognize that, you know, the, the carbon footprint for vegans is probably, you know, 70% lower than it is for, for omnivores. So we just are getting that. And I think it's just important that we recognize that it's another way, uh, another choice as human beings that we can make uh, to leave a softer footprint on this planet. You know, I, I went vegan, uh, pretty much vegan about 35 years ago. And, wow. and I can remember um, uh, being really afraid uh, because I was a registered dietitian and I, I didn't know if there were any other registered dietitians who were vegetarian, let alone vegan. I was terrified I'd just be ousted from my profession because at that time, vegan diets were just considered dangerous. And, um, and I can remember we lived in Northern Ontario and, and my husband grew up, you know, fishing and hunting partridges and doing all that stuff. His best buddy was, you know, um, there and well, still is a hunter. And anyway, um, I remember saying to my husband, you know, would you, would you be willing to become completely vegetarian I just really like to do that and for me it was an issue of animals and all of the all of all of the above you know all of the reasons yeah, yeah. it just made sense to me and he looked at me and he said he smiled 
And he said, I thought you'd never ask. He said, I love to be a vegetarian. He said, you know, when I was in school, we learned that the lower you eat on the food chain, the lower your carbon footprint. And he said, I just, I would love to leave a softer footprint. And I just felt like I was like, just so lucky, <laughs> so lucky. Yeah. Um, because I don't think that many men at that time would have responded in that way. Yeah. And, uh, and so he just got, he just got it. I think he was always a step ahead of me, but anyway, um, yeah, I, I just think for so many reasons, uh, the world needs to be moving in this direction. Well, that is certainly the case. And that is a great, uh, way to wrap up and we went really deep into, you know, protein and amino acids and individual needs. And now we've zoomed back out to the way it impacts all of our collective ecological footprints. So, um, uh, Brenda, thank you so much for, oh, for spending a little bit of your time. I, I encourage everybody to go check out the plant-powered protein book. Um, yeah, and uh, here it is. That's what it looks yeah. like. <laughs> um, no, it's a beautiful, full-color book that I'm really excited to have on my shelf now as well. So um, thank uh, you again, thank you. I really well, appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. It was really fun talking with you, and I hope you get better really soon. <laughs> yeah, thanks for your patience. I desperately need to go blow my nose. <laughs> yes. <laughs>